But then we have these subcategory types and the subcategory type that in addition to that is the one that puts all the eggs in the basket of work. That's my level of success. That's my identity. This is what proves I'm good at I'm a good and worthy person. And if that's where you come from, you're going to be very devastated if a bully walks in and, and targets you. It's going to destroy you because your your sense of self is all about your job. That's not healthy either. We have to have a good work-life balance and we have to define who we are by our community and our social life and our family. Now, men are more typically in that category because they're expected to be the providers. They're expected to go out there, hunt and gather and bring it home and take care of the mortgage and the payments and the health benefits. So it really does destroy their sense of self and their belief about what's, what makes them worthy. This is Remaking Manhood, the Healthy Masculinity Podcast. I'm Mark Green. And I'm Charles Matthews. What is men's work? What is our path to healthy masculinity? Well, that's something each of us must decide for ourselves. Charles and I, we've each walked the hard road through divorces, professional failures, hopelessness, anger, grief. For us, it was open, honest conversations with other men that showed us the way to a better life. And now we're ready to pay those conversations forward. Join us as we talk with leaders, researchers, authors, and trailblazers in the field of healthy masculinity. These are rich, honest, emotional conversations with the men and women who are working to create a new masculinity of connection, improving men's relationships, careers, parenting, and self-care. We're glad you're here. We're releasing this special episode in partnership with Speak Up at Work and in recognition of Workplace Bullying Awareness Week. How does a dive into workplace bullying fit in with a podcast on healthy masculinity? Well, one in three people are bullied at work, and as we'll hear, male targets of bullying often experiencing the most significant impacts, up to including suicide and premature death. The prevalence of domination culture in most workplaces, in combination with the isolating expectations of, of man-box masculinity, makes workplace bullying a potent toxin for men, whether we are perpetrators, enablers, bystanders, or targets. To help us untangle all of these roles, dig into the root causes of workplace bullying, and to propose some system solutions and individual actions, Mark and I are joined by Linda Crockett and Anima Kasai two people who've dedicated their lives to empowering others to prevent and recover from harassment and bullying at work. Linda Crockett is a clinical social worker and activist who's the founder of the Canadian Institute of Workplace Bullying and Harassment Resource Center, the first and only full-service resource center in Canada specifically for psychological harassment. Linda provides workplace management services to employees and employers from all professions and industries. Linda started the Workplace Bullying Awareness Week 10 years ago. She believes this is a worldwide issue and we need a worldwide solution. This year, every day between October 17th and 23rd, depending on where you are, you will have access to podcasts, TV interviews, radio interviews, blogs, articles, online discussions, posters, t-shirts, and so much more. This movement is making a difference, and we're proud to be a part of it. So for more information about the Workplace Bullying Awareness Week, see the links on our show notes. Anima Kosai is a British barrister who speaks, writes, and advises on speaking up in organizations specifically to break the silence on wrongdoing. 
She founded Speak Up at Work to diagnose the Speak Up culture in companies and assess their response to reports on wrongdoing, harassment, unsafe, and unethical practices. Anma served as counsel within the oil and gas industry for 14 years and was an advocate and solicitor on the Malaysian bar for nine years. She is a certified coach and consultant, now based in London with associates in Kuala Lumpur. You can find Anima's writing and advocacy at speakupatwork.com. In this episode, you'll hear me confront my own complicity in the face of a workplace bully and how that complicity affected me. Listen to the full episode to learn how we can stop taking workplace culture for granted and find ways to make the workplace better for all of us. Gosh, welcome everybody to this really special episode where we're going to be talking about the the place where we spend a third of our lives, mm. sometimes more, <laughs> and what we can do as uh, conscious men and women to make that big chunk of our lives a lot more fun and what we can do for ourselves, what we can do for one another, what we can do for the culture at work uh, to just make it sustainable and and thriving and and enjoyable. So when we talk about when we talk about bullying in the workplace, we're talking about something that impacts men, women, non non-gender binary folks, trans people, everyone. And it is in my experience the aspect of work that always made me not want to go to that place and not want to be a part of that. So it speaks directly to productivity, to innovation, to all of the stuff that needs to be happening in the workplace. So I, I want to thank uh, Linda and Anima as well for joining us today, because I know both of you have, have been really passionate about this issue for a long time. And Linda, I would love for you to start off by just kind of talking about what, what you mean by bullying. This isn't exactly schoolyard bullying, but it's not that different either. And, and, but I think so many of us take it for granted that we don't really even see it, right? We, it's kind of like being a fish in the water, right? But talk, tell us a little bit about what workplace bullying looks like, smells like, feels like. <laughs> well, let's face it. It is not new. It's not a new phenomenon. We've known it from great, great, great grandparents and beyond, right? So it's not new to us. And the fact that it, it is so normalized is the reason that it is happening in front of our faces and we don't realize it. It is quite subtle in the beginning. And I'm also glad that you referenced schoolyard bullying because a lot of people make the assumption that it is the same as schoolyard bullying. There might be some similarities, you're absolutely right, but it is quite a quite different, uh, far more complicated, far more harming experience. And so you will see similarities in the sense that, you know, kids will yell and scream at each other, call each other's names, but schoolyard bullying is quite, quite aggressive, more physical, whereas workplace bullying is psychological primarily. You'll absolutely see the screaming and the yelling and the name calling as well, but it's primarily psychological harassment, even to the extent of psychological violence, right? So it's evolved just like the rest of us, everything in our world has evolved. So has workplace bullying. It is very insidious. It is, it is crazy making. It is difficult to prove because it is usually he said, she said kind of situations. And most people aren't willing to come forward. And there's a lot of very valid reasons as to why they won't come forward because normally we're not handling it appropriately. They see the whole process fail and they don't want to come forward and go through what they're seeing other people go through. 
So, and it isn't just, you know, rumors. It isn't just that I rolled my eyes at Anima even 10 times. It isn't just that I, you know, started a rumor about you or, you know, undermined you or threw you under the bus or even ostracized you. It's a combination of all those things over a period of time. You know, it starts off with meanness, maybe rudeness. It, it can evolve to incivility. It can evolve to abrasiveness. But if we do not manage it appropriately, it will evolve even further to destroy people's careers, destroy their psychological health, their physical health. And even at some point, it becomes fatal. Linda, tell me how you arrived at this work, um, both in terms of the organization you founded, but also perhaps a little earlier. How did you how did you arrive at your passion about this work? Well, like everybody else, I had no clue that this existed. You know, I, I had 22 years in my own profession at that time of social work. And in social work, I, I managed hundreds of individuals or families, walked them through the mental health system, the criminal system, the, the, the medical system, insurance system, human rights, you name that, and working with unions, lawyers, all of it for 22 years. I even investigated abuse. I trained investigators to assess domestic violence, child abuse, uh, sexual, you know, you name it. I, I walked through it. And yet I went through this and it took me hitting actual rock bottom to the point of diagnosis with PTSD before I actually realized I read my first paper on workplace bullying. And to be honest, when I read it, I actually threw the paper across the room. I thought, no way could that happen to me. Not after all my training. Not after all the experience I have, how could that happen to me? And it took a while for me to read that paper and accept it because shame got in the way. You know, like I was so ashamed that I didn't see it. How could I not? How could I miss it? And the interesting part was when I finally did get it and and understood it, I realized that had been happening throughout my whole 22 years of career. I either witnessed it or went through it. I've been mobbed several times. So when I hit rock bottom, I knew then I needed to do something about this because if I missed it, what about all those people that didn't have my education or work experience? And what about those who didn't even speak English as a first language? I barely survived. How are they going to make it? And then I thought about my children and my grandchildren. And I thought, I've got to do something about that. In Canada, we have nothing. We weren't talking about it. We weren't doing statistics on it. And I just knew that it wasn't going away. Wow. So you took your experience and extended a, a, an awareness out to what everybody else must be going through. That's a, that's a, that's a, yeah, that's a radical act of, of, of compassion. Yeah. Thank you for that. I have a, uh, you know, we, we talk a lot about diversity and inclusion and trying to create more human centered workplaces, but I think it's easy to understand that, that the business world has hundreds of years of history as being a male and white dominated space. And I don't use the word dominated lightly. It's a, it's a hierarchical culture where, you know, if you're going to be successful, you have to defeat or dominate those around you. And that led to a hierarchical bullying culture, which was just standard operating procedure for business. And I wonder if you have any thoughts, Linda, on the degree to which, um, these sort of ideas about masculine power have informed bullying. Yeah. Well, one of the the highest risk factors in the workplace is that authoritarian leadership style, you know, and that happens to be the most popular 
just like you're describing, it fits that that description that you just said. It's the authoritarian leadership style. And you know, we've we've hired people deliberately for that style, and then we've rewarded them, and we've given them promotions, and we've given them massive bonuses, and we've given them all this kind of attention that just says what you're doing is right. And so it just keeps going, and it keeps evolving, and it gets worse, and it gets worse. And to to be honest with you, uh, men are the I, I normally have women coming in. It's it's rare for me to see men coming in. And there was a period of time here in in Alberta, Canada, where all I ever saw was men. There was one year where it was mostly men that came in, and that's when the oil field was being attacked and and cut. They were doing cutbacks, and these authoritarian leaders were hired to come in and cut all these men. You know, take them out of the job. All these men, twenty, thirty years in the workplace, very successful all of a sudden are getting psychologically harassed to the point of psychological violence, which in my opinion is a campaign to get rid of them. And so by the time the men came in, they were devastated, severely depressed, very suicidal, uh, because it, it's not easy for men to ask for help. You know, they're constantly told to suck it up, buttercup, uh, be a man, don't be a wuss. And so they, they, they internalize it and internalize it and internalize it. By the time they come to see me, they're quite suicidal. When they come, when they come in, as you say, what what services are they seeking, and what are you providing for them? The services that they're seeking, well, they're desperately looking for help because they've tried everything. Like uh, th- these men just don't believe that that we can help, so they try everything, and they have to hit absolute rock bottom before they'll come in and ask for help. So they're looking for a life jacket. They're just looking for anything by that point. I mean, I've never had to put anybody. The only people I've ever had to hospitalize in the last ten years that I've done this are men because they're so at that point of desperation. They're looking for answers, make sense of this. How is this happening to me? Why is this happening to me? And what, what can I do now? You know, and, and how do I get out of this? Just desperate for some answers. What's the, rip, what's the ripple effect in, in, in their larger circles? What, when someone's bullied in the workplace, how far does the damage extend out? Oh my gosh. I mean, like I said, it goes to a point of fatality, right? We know of cases of men and women dying because of a heart attack that has absolutely nothing to do with their men, their medical history, none whatsoever. So we're looking at cardiac arrest. We're looking at premature death. We're also looking at suicide. The number of suicide that we're seeing is, is climbing. And I mean, the youngest that we know of has taken their lives is eight years old, but it goes all the way right up to seniors in facilities taking their lives due to bullying. So how far does it get? It gets that bad. But it destroys them physically, mentally, financially, spiritually. It even impacts their families, their relationships. You know, this strong, dynamic man is now coming home and going to bed and doesn't want to sit at the dinner table, doesn't want to join the family dinners on Sunday or the usual walks or whatever they do, starting to diminish. And the children are watching that happening. This this strong, dynamic person, male or female, is starting to shrink in front of their eyes. So they're all worried. They're all concerned. They're up all night with that person as well. Linda, if someone's, if a man or a woman are listening to this podcast and they're thinking, it's the water we swim in, I'm so used to it. How do I know? What's a, what's a signal for me that, that maybe I'm being subjected to bullying? What, what would you tell them? Well, there's so many signals. I, I mean, the, the minute you sense that something's not right, you should pay attention to that. And if you're not sure what's going on, just call someone like me or Anima. We can debrief with you. We can give you a reality check. We can give you some facts, some research-based facts. We can give you some direction. But the minute that you're even confused and just feeling that gut sense something's not right, trust it. 
trust it and talk to somebody. You don't have to go through this alone. Get some clarity. So this is, I mean, you know, again, the, the fish that swims, you know, I'll just tell my own story. I was the executive director of a, of a nonprofit and had a board of, of powerful people people who could fundraise, people who could provide direction, people with tons of experience in the in the corporate world who could make sure that our nonprofit, you know, was able to thrive and and grow. And the 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 chairman of the board was somebody who I held up as a mentor, as a personal mentor, as a as an example for these boys whom we were serving, as an example of positive manhood. And slowly over time, it became clear that he was a bully. And it took a long time for me to come up for air and realize this isn't this isn't normal. This isn't what's supposed to happen. And you know, some of the uh, I wasn't directly targeted, and one woman after another would join the board and then quit within six months. And his bullying was so subtle, the way you described it, Linda, really subtle really subtle psychological, just sort of a little bit interrupting, yeah. a little, and, and instead of kind of yes and responses, sort of yes but responses, in particular to the women and in particular to a couple of the men who were sort of lower status on the board. So although we were creating this organization with these male volunteers and these boys, it was really all about the new masculinity of connection, the new masculinity of compassion and equity, what was happening at the top was the typical dysfunctional boardroom of arguments, disagreements, uh, talking behind one another's back. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm still filled with kind of shame and embarrassment about how I held him up on a pedestal because he had so much to offer me professionally and personally and didn't notice the way he was bringing everybody else down so that he could stay uh at the top of the hierarchy and feel purposeful and, and important. Uh, and ultimately that destroy the organization. It, it is, you know, like what you're describing is perfect example. It, it is like a, like a virus that kind of sneaks in and just suddenly takes over. And it's when it gets under your skin that you begin to become kind of hostage to this psychological manipulation that's going on because it, when it gets under your skin, it's starting to hit that, that part of us that we even question about ourselves, you know, am I smart enough? Am I good enough? Am I this? Am I that? You know, it just gets under your skin that way, but it is subtle. I call it psychological injury by a thousand psychological insults. I think that's the best way to describe it because we all think it's that childhood thing. Oh, they just shove you to the, like, grow up, get a, you know, don't be so sensitive. Well, my response to that is don't be so insensitive. Yeah. We're, we're talking about a context in which men and, and women especially are caught between the need for the, to maintain their economic security and their, uh, their being, and, and that con- is a containment that isn't on the playground. It isn't on, it, it isn't in other contexts as strong. But when you're, when you're sincerely concerned about the well-being of your family, of your children, uh, this bullying takes on a very different level of cruelty. Oh, yeah. And and I I'm also reminded a bit of uh, of what I know about adult children of alcoholics that kind of a of a therapy group I I have been in one of those groups for a while 
And what we come to understand almost immediately is that an alcoholic, often man, leader of the family, spends his time disorienting all the other family members so that they will not turn and address his issue. And I think uh, I think dominance and bullying is a corruptive addiction for some people, and they keep and they use it to disorient all the individuals around them, so nobody actually says what's going on yeah. with you. I think that's an, an excellent example because often in cases of alcoholism, it is the the spouse, the sober spouse, that looks like the crazy person, right? The alcoholic is always looking pretty charming and pretty good but that it's the spouse who's going nuts trying to make this person stop drinking. Where in the workplace, you've got your, your offender and you've got your target. It's the target who looks crazy because they're not sleeping. They're not eating. They're stressed out. And the, the, the offender is actually looking pretty good. And back to your point, Charles, as well, it's one of my clues is start looking who you do have on a pedestal. Because look again. You know, like, why are we putting them on a pedestal for one? But how, And how did they get there? Is it because they're constantly reminding us of how great they are? In some subtle ways, they're grooming and, 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 and really setting us up like that. So I now look for the pedestal and I look, okay, I'm going to look again and watch that one. I'm having like full body reactions to, to this talk. And this is kind of um, uh, daunting. This conversation is daunting for me, but I, but I trust that it is ultimately healing for me. And I hope it's feeling that same way to, to people who are listening, you know, you use the word hostage and I'm like, Oh, fuck. <laughs> I, I was a, I was a willing hostage. I was an enabler of this, of this bullying behavior. Um, and you know, I, I, ah, well, um, if it's any comfort to you, Charles, you're one of gazillions. Right. We have all fallen victim. I hate that word. Um, target uh, to these people because we have we're not watching our backs. We come to work with the intent to do a good job. We think we're all mature. We think we're all professional. We we think that we're protected by policies and procedures and legislation, but we're not. There is somebody there that is lurking, that is far more insecure. Maybe they're really skilled at manipulating because they're covering up something, like you said, Mark. There's something they're covering up. If it isn't alcoholism, it might be a mental illness. It might be that they're having an affair. It might be that they have, they're imposters, you know, and that they're afraid you're going to catch them because you're, you know, you're a threat to them. So there's something they're covering up and they're using us to divert away to, you know, where the scapegoats. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to, I want to go right there for a second about that, you know, that kind of that insight into the perpetrator. And this really ties into the work that Mark and I talk about all the time. You know, you just talked about um, how the perpetrator might be motivated to kind of cover up to that. They have an imposter syndrome. Um, and it's, you know, that's the result of this man box culture in particular for men, this set of unrealistic expectations, these outmoded expectations about what a leader should be, how they should behave and that we're all on this hierarchical battle and somebody there's always somebody above us and that's the problem with this hierarchical this dominance hierarchy this this man box culture there's always somebody above we're never secure and we play as hard as we can on that ladder in that hierarchy but we never win so we are always covering up we are always pushing our, our weaknesses, our foibles, our mistakes, our softnesses, our questions, our doubts into our shadow. We never want them to be seen. 
what goes down, right? What goes down is this bullying behavior, is this uh, gaslighting, is this undercutting, is this, you know, as you call it, the subtle, you know, these subtle psychological insights that add up to psychological injury. That's, that's really fascinating. And, and you talked about, I, I would love for you to share the story. You talked about how you shifted your work a little bit from um, just supporting uh, targets of workplace bullying to really beginning to think about what's going on for these perpetrators. And, and, and your, your epiphany happened in a McDonald's <laughs> near yes, the, near the McDonald's playpen. Can you, can you kind of explain it? And you talked about it like mid mid flight, you had an epiphany. Can you tell that story a little bit? Well, I had been doing this work for a couple of years and I, I was absolutely adamant. I would never work with somebody who bullied. I would never work with the perpetrators of bullying. But I was actually sitting in a McDonald's playland with my little grandson, who's about three years old at the time, quite timid. And he's up playing in the, you know, the, the things that they're up there playing in. And there's a couple of kids on the other side as well. And I watched this little boy walk in. He was kind of a big built boy, but he didn't have language yet. So we'll say he's probably three, but a big, big kid. And mom was very, very busy, aggressively texting on her phone and not really paying attention to her boy. But I got a feeling about this this whole this scene of them walking in and her being so intense. And I watched the little boy. Like I said, he didn't have language yet. So what he did was he would scream, he would use grunts, he would loud, use loud noises, and he would use his body to bang and bang in through the tubes of the play area. He wasn't getting attention. I'm watching him. He's not getting noticed. These kids are still playing away. They're not looking at him. Mom's still busy frantically on this phone. And he got louder and he got louder. And, I'm, and I get this gut feeling, uh-oh, this isn't going to go well. I was worried about my little grandson. And all of a sudden, he walked over to him and just thumped him one right in the face. And he knocked him down. And that's when I went in flight. I left my chair and I flew with the intent that I was going to grab this little boy by the neck, his collar of his shirt and drag him over to his mom. But in flight, I thought, oh, my God, that's what's happening to him. I can't do that. Something like this has happened to this little boy that has already been aggressive. I can't do that. So within seconds, I realized, uh-oh, something's going wrong. I just lifted up my little guy and moved him on. He was fine. And I walked him over to his mom. And his mom didn't even look up, just screamed at him. And this little boy became a baby in front of me, a, a little baby with tears just wailing everywhere and I thought oh my god there's time to, to change this little guy there's time to heal him there's time to mold him in a way that he can learn but he's not getting his needs met and right in front of my eyes I, I'm going through all the scenarios is this domestic violence is this mental illness what is he exposed to that's creating him to feel that he has to survive by using grunts and physical aggression this is a little boy that goes to kindergarten that might beat up the kids, the little kid that goes to grade six that shoves the kids into the lockers. This might be the kid that brings a gun or a knife into school, or maybe he starts to bully at work. And so I got to see the whole thing flash before my eyes as to how this can happen to people. And it just opened my mind to the possibility that I need to work with them. I need to learn their stories. We need to share about their stories and find out how it all began. Why is this their survival mechanism? And then it became part of the most interesting work I do. 
Yeah, I just want to say, Linda, you know, again, as you're speaking and, you know, and as I'm imagining you levitating as a grandmother um, and your your compassion for that um, for that perpetrator and, and sort of, you know, bully and training, um, you know, thank you, because what that enabled me to do is feel some compassion for the bully in my organization. And, you know, I'm still angry, but the, the fact that that man who was so successful one of the wealthiest people in town, connected with with lots of power, political power, a lovely wife, beautiful home, you know, loving family, a, a vintage Ferrari or vintage Porsche. You know, he had it all and yet he didn't have enough. He was still that little boy needing more. And I'm just like, God, why? What are we doing to one another as men in particular that leave us fighting for scraps of of acknowledgement of power of safety of of attainment yeah <sighs> one thing we know for sure is that even though he had it all he did not have peace somebody who is confident somebody who is competent somebody who is happy does not bully yeah thank yeah. you for that thank Charles. you linda i was just going to ask when you know, we know that these large organizations, um, I mean, I had an experience with a client years ago. He was the head guy in a major American corporation. And I mean, if I said the name of it, you would know. And my, he was my client because back then I was a graphics guy and I, I was his personal PowerPoint guy. I made, made presentations for him, helped craft them along with his team. So I had, it was me, his team, and then him. But I would get calls at two o'clock in the morning from his team members saying, he's in China, he wants this word changed. He was known to be the most openly volatile, abusive personality that any of these people had ever encountered. And they continued to work for him anyway, because of the compensation was very good and so on. I'm wondering about if you work with a perpetrator, what happens in terms of that whole network, which protects and insulates that person's behavior, how does that play into the work you try to do with perpetrators at, the, at, at a very high level in organizations? Mm. Oh, that's a big question. There's so many answers. I mean, obviously, the if it's gone on for this long, if it's gone on for years and years, then obviously that culture has been for festering and fermenting for a very long time and for many, many, many different reasons whether they're covering up extortion, whether they have been cutting back on safety practices, whatever it is that they're doing has been going on a long time. Now I have referrals, you know, employers will call me and say, this guy, we did an investigation, it's substantiated, he is bullying, he must come and see you or else he's terminated, we want you to get him to change his behaviors. And I'll work with that guy and I'll get through those layers and we'll make those changes, but then we'll get to the bottom of it and we'll find out it's actually the employer that has been forcing this guy to do things that has led him to this behavior. So then when that's called out, the employer cuts off all connection to me <laughs> because they're getting caught, right? So it gets really layered and really ugly, you know? So what's what started it, it's long gone. Let's figure out what we can do about it today. I think Anima could probably add to that. Yeah, I was just gonna say, I see her, see her nodding vociferously. <laughs> can you nod vociferously? Vigorously, that's the word. <laughs> Um, and if I could just begin, Anima, can you just quickly let our listeners know about your your work these days, what you're doing, and your organization? 
Well, I started Speak Up. It's timely that we've come to this, Linda, because I started Speak Up to really look at it from the other equation, because I've been in the corporate world and I've been a lawyer for a very long time. And what intrigued me because I used to carry out investigations, whether it was things like corruption or it was things like unsafe practices or it was things like sexual harassment in terms of what's going on. And um, what I do is actually help organizations address these issues through co-creating safe, healthy, and inclusive workplace culture right? And part of that, and that's why I call it speak up, because a lot of it is about how do you create a speak up culture? How do you build psychological safety? What's going on? So if something is wrong, whether it's sexual harassment, an unsafe practice, or there's some fraud or something going on at some level, um, people feel safe to raise it on early enough so that management, the leadership can deal with it. And unfortunately, what we see in a lot of these cases that hit the news is that people are afraid to raise it, afraid to speak up, or they have tried. And in the end, they either face some form of retaliation, often that's bullying. Actually, bullying is a red flag that there's something else going on. Not always. Sometimes it's just a simple case of bullying, but often it's to cover up, just as Linda said, it's to cover up some form of wrongdoing or harm that's been festering somewhere. Um, and that's, that's kind of what we look at. And when people are looking at it from a risk management perspective, I often say that, are there any sort of red flags that have popped up in terms of um, people trying to raise things, but no one's listening? What's going on there? So that, that's essentially what I do. And I help organizations, leaders, whether they're, they're in compliance or HR or at a leadership level themselves in terms of how, how do we address this? Because it's, it's difficult. It's almost like compliance, which is my background, where we're so used to box ticking and what are the laws and looking at, you know, so the laws say this, the regulator wants this. How do we fit that in an organizational context to how do you address it at a human behavior level that isn't going to take kindly to being told what they shouldn't do and how they should behave because that just doesn't work? So I'm sort of the bridge in between having been a lawyer and understanding that perspective to the great harm that it does to people at an individual level and sort of helping sort of organizations there. So one of the things that I found very fascinating, um, you know, Linda, was when you were looking, you know, looking at what creates a bully, right? So I'll move away from the playground perspective and bring it to a workplace, an organization. So what creates bullying behaviors? And it's just as you said, often it's actually, it's so common in the middle management, right? That's where a lot of the bullying is happening. They're bullying down because they're being pressured from above. Right. So I, what I really would be interested in discussing today is what are those pressures and what can people in the leadership positions do to address those pressures? So you don't see that that the great deal of bullying that's happening at the middle level go down further or across. Well, let's keep in mind one of the, the pieces of research that we have available to us is that 74 percent of the bullying is coming top down. Right. That's good information for us to have. I mean, people can people have reacted to me when I'm doing the training. Some of them have been angry with me. Some of them have actually bullied me as I'm training But when they hear that piece of information. But if we can just really look at that and say this is this is how we can fix it. If 74 percent 
is coming from leadership, then what are we doing? What is our hiring practices? Are we hiring for marriage or are we hiring because we owe somebody a favor or are we hiring because, you know, we can't fill the position? Are these people competent? Are they able to be accountable? Are they skilled? And are we constantly training them? Are we monitoring them? Are we providing them with coaching? Are we setting leaders up for success? Clearly we're not. If we really had competent, confident leaders in the workplace, they would not tolerate bullying with their staff either. So if you remove that problem, you've removed workplace bullying. It's not all to blame the leaders. Absolutely not. Because they're, you know, we know bullying is bottom up and side to side as well, equal to equal. But primarily it's top down. So if we resolve that problem, we're probably going to resolve bullying altogether. Yeah, I was going to say that, I mean, there's several reasons why you would get this. I mean, one is this kind of very authoritarian or the leader is like the prima donna or the founder or the face of the organization. And we can all think of many people who meet that, but their behavior is such that um, because they're the face of the organization and they're linked with it, it's very hard for anyone to say anything bad against them because they would be shut down. They would be, and, and we've seen, we've seen these kind of instances. I don't know if we'll, we should name names. Some of them are exactly public yet. Um, but when, I mean, you think about Steve Jobs in the past, where quite a number of people described his behavior, but he was seen as the face of Apple and what he did was brilliant. And this is the thing we need to sort of kind of consider, yes, we have these brilliant people, but does that mean that we can condone this darker side of their character? And what sometimes happens is they're surrounded by a group of people, whether they're HR, lawyers, um, and, and, and other people are enablers um, who, who basically kind of protect him and help deny anything that he has done. Um, and they go after people who try and say, hey, this is wrong. They've done this. This is racist or so on. Um, they set their lawyers on them. And, and this, this kind of culture makes it even harder for people within to continue speaking up. But the other thing that you raised, um, Charles, and it, it links with the nonprofit case that, that, that you talked about earlier, is this sense of when we put people on a pedestal because they're do-gooders, it's actually, I call it the halo effect. It's harder to speak up against them because who are people going to side with? Are they going to side with the do-gooder who's already seen as a wonderful person or the person who tried saying, hey, this person has, has done this, they've bullied me in this way, they're not going to believe the, the victim, right? And there's that as well. So they don't get the support they want. And the thing is this, the do-gooders, the people on the pedestals, the charmers and all that, they know that. And this creates that additional sort of power dynamic, which allows the bullying to continue. And everyone else within the organization knows this. And I want to talk about Jimmy Seville in the UK with the BBC, right? He's died now, but he was after his death, people then discovered he was a pedophile. He had raped and sexually abused uh, not just young women, but children because they were under 18, some of these girls, right? Um, and uh, nobody at the BBC had spoken about this openly. And it was, and what happened was after that, there was an uh, investigation done within the BBC and they found an incredible toxic fear culture to the extent that 
the investigation even described meetings where people would sit in a meeting and it would be their what their day to be bullied and everybody else would be silent because if they spoke up they would then be bullied after that so they just keep their heads down and think thank god it's not me but this goes back to the question i raised right at the beginning is what is creating this culture so yes you sometimes have personalities that are creating it but often as well sometimes you look at an organization and there's no one dominant personality that comes out it's almost like everyone is behaving a certain way and what's going on there is and this is where i really want to take it back and you know as a lawyer i'm fascinated with things like shareholder value what do organizations have to bring especially if they're listed on stock exchanges and so on the pressure with every year these organizations these companies they they actually promise you know to their shareholders to the analysts we're going to make this much money this year we're going to capture this amount of market share we're going to do we're going to be better than this year and this is a very male kind of what's been attributed to a very male kind of a culture where it's competitive so you have all these other companies that are rivals and they're trying to cut each other's throats right and be the best the best bank the best car maker the best tech company right um and they're promising this to the stock exchange and of course once they do that and the analysts are holding them you know like well you said you would meet this much net revenue but you haven't this quarter what's going on and it's a it cascades from the shareholders to the board of directors down to the top level c suite right down to the various divisions middle management it's all coming down and what's happening is that you will have targets at each level you'll have the company targets you'll have the department targets you'll have the individual targets and the way that is set up is in such a way that there's such intense competition even internally that they end up you'll have silos within organizations where they'll not share information because they want to do better than the other department and also this is made worse by the fact in some organizations and actually interestingly this is started by GE although GE stopped doing this was the bell curve right so individuals individual employees were ranked based on a sort of where do they fit in the organization and if you were at the bottom of the bell curve you'd get the you wouldn't get any bonus you'd get the worst performance and if there were going to be cutbacks you were the first to go so just imagine what kind of environment that is creating bringing this back into the kind of pressure and the bullying context is that it's often nuanced it's not very clear cut that if someone chooses to uh not divulge information or play some of these bullying tactics like excluding people or saying the wrong thing they are seen by some of their teammates as betraying their group in terms of performance and their jobs could be on the line so it's there's a whole lot of other issues that surround this and in order to address it in order to cope many of them end up resorting to some of these things that we would call bullying right they would either be yelling and screaming because the pressure is too much they would be excluding people from information which is also bullying and the, the environment gets so hostile that just these issues that so it's, it's like a, it's like a toxic capitalism that that then creates these toxic environments and these really intense personal expressions of of dominance and and control is that a kind of a good way to 
sum it up. Absolutely. And the the sad thing is we accept it. When we go into the workplace, we'll say, well, this is We're accepting it less and less. Um, Yeah, you're right about that. I think. I hope so. It's happening in the UK. (laughs) I don't know about other countries. People are walking away from their jobs, even with all this economic uncertainty. I mean, there's, there's so many job vacancies now. And the big areas are healthcare, where it's so needed, and um, education, right? If you think about it, healthcare, there's so much need for doctors and other healthcare professionals right now. But the environment has become so toxic. And if you see the pressure that is on people right now because of COVID, it manifests in terms of bullying behavior by doctors, by administrators, by nurses towards each other. So we, we know that stress and pressure is a high risk factor for bullying in the workplace. And we know that it was already an epidemic before COVID. COVID, I thought, was going to give us a little bit of a break, but I was wrong. It's actually been worse since COVID started. Anima, I have a question for you. How is there any new thinking about how one encourages a an organization to be productive and to be competitive without being bullying? Is it is it a question of making sure that everyone is equally rewarded for the performance of the organization? I mean, instead of these bell curve ideas, how how do we get out of this this trap of bullying without without the implied critique that, oh, well, then you're just not going to be competitive anymore. Well, actually, quite a number are stepping back and looking back and seeing what's the most important thing, my people or where I am in the marketplace and profits, right? And actually, interesting enough, the pressure isn't coming necessarily from the top or within. It's actually coming from society and the public because they see it right? I mean, you just have to talk about Amazon and people are saying, well, maybe I don't need my package to arrive immediately the next day. And I think this is where the public play a huge role on actually easing that pressure so that companies don't feel they have to keep delivering like this, 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 this. The same time, and this takes very brave leadership to tell their shareholders, no, we're not going to meet this. Uh, We're going to have to reduce um, what we had promised last year because of what's happening. But um, what we want to focus on are people, you know, whatever they want to talk about. Because what we're seeing are organizations are now coming back to looking at values, looking at what's important. But not enough of them are doing it because some of them are still pretty much on on that sort of default setting because they're fighting other battles at the moment. But it really takes brave leadership to say, we need to step back and brave leadership to tell their board, to tell their shareholders, no, we need to change. Otherwise, we are hemorrhaging, we're losing people, we're hurting people, and that's where we need to focus. So some companies, not enough, are doing that. But I'm actually being approached by by some companies who are keen to make these changes, as scary as it may be, because they know they're not going to like what employees are saying. So a lot of it has to do with stepping back and listening, really listening to their people and saying, tell us, can we do this? What's the issues? And listening in a way, um, committing to to not retaliating, that there won't be any pushback on them. People are not going to lose their jobs because they raise concerns and talk about difficult things. Linda, I want to go back to something you said earlier, because I, I think a lot of this conversation has 
I mean, I started it off by talking about dominance-based masculine culture that, that sort of drove our idea of what business is for hundreds of years. But you said something, you talked about the old girls club. And I want to make absolutely sure that the, the men out there who have in their own professional careers felt bullied and, and broken down by women managers or women in the organization not feel like we're skating past that possibility. Because I think bullying comes from, from all aspects of, of organizations and all genders. Can you speak a little bit more about whether, the, whether in that moment maybe women are just trying to mimic the sort of masculine dominant style of business or whether there's a different kind of dynamic that m- maybe plays out among women or with women managers over men or however that because I think men would like to be acknowledged that sometimes we've been impacted that way. And I'll just say, I had an experience of that when I was young. Um, I had a I had a manager who taught me to get 100% right, because if I got 99% right, I was only going to hear about the 1%. And after a year and a half, I quit that job. But boy, ever since then, I've always thought 17 steps ahead, because it's just, it's horrible to just get jumped on every single time uh, for that 1%. I've certainly seen many cases of men that have been really quite destroyed, actually, by a female leader. And I think everything you said is part of it. There's a is it the personality of the woman? Is she is she dominating? Is she abrasive already? But I think an awful lot of women are in that competitive state of trying to be just like the the men, trying to be just right up there, one upmanship, try to survive, right? To to be just like them. So you'll get your aggressive physically aggressive, verbally aggressive, but you'll also get your subtle and your insidious uh, psychological games as well. And again, there's that shaming factor, right? The shame, like you spoke to, Anima, is the fear-based. And there's that shame factor too. I mean, it's very much like domestic violence and sexual assault, whereas that shame factor comes in that I should have seen it, I should have been better, I should have spoke up. Am I stupid? Am I not smart enough? Am I not good enough? That stuff gets in there into our own system, it it actually, I've heard it defined as like soul murder because it reaches your soul, your core belief about yourself as well. Because we're so identified with our work, especially men, we're so identified with our work, our our career and all that. Yeah. I mean, it is the, one of the things that we we get into with the childhood stuff is that we think that it's, are we meek and mild? Is that why they're after us? Are we just that, you know, unskilled person? Is that why they're after us? And that's a myth. We have to change that because it's actually the the category of really strong, dynamic, dedicated, loyal, hardworking, ethical people that are being targeted. But then we have these subcategory types and the subcategory type that in addition to that is the one that puts all the eggs in the basket of work. That's my level of success. That's my identity. This is what proves I'm good at, I'm a good, worthy person. And if that's where you come from, you're going to be very devastated if a bully walks in and, and targets you. It's going to destroy you because your your sense of self is all about your job. That's not healthy either. We have to have a good work-life balance and we have to define who we are by our community and our social life and our family. Now, men are more typically in that category because they're expected to be the providers. They're expected to go out there, hunt and gather and bring it home and take care of the mortgage and the payments and the health benefits. So it really does destroy their sense of self and their belief about what's what makes them worthy. Yeah. Anima, you were going to say something? Yeah. Um, 
in terms of women bullying um, each other or women being the bullies, um, I'd say that this stems from a sense that there's a, there's a sense of lack, like, oh, there's only so many positions at the top for women. They have to jock it, uh, jostle for position. And in order to, to rise up the ladder, they have to take on some of these uh, masculine domineering traits. I mean, I've been there. I know what it's like. I mean, I have taken on some of these traits. And when I look back at, with horror, I go, oh, my God, that's not me. And a lot of women have to change in order to rise up the ladder. And this is what I'm challenging now. Why? Do we have this, this image that leadership, that an organization has to be a certain way? Why does it have to be around structure, competition? What if we look at some of the things that women quite naturally do? I know I'm stereotyping here, but, but we see this, right? This is society has made us this way, uh, that what if we we look at a sort of different style of leadership that women bring? And we see, of course, in New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern is one example of that, right? Where we're looking at more of a sort of listening, more of a sensing, more of a sort of caring and understanding people, as opposed to here, here are all your tasks, do it, get it done. I don't care how you do it, just get it done. I mean, I used to behave that way, right? Um, a more supportive style of leadership, which is not interested in blowing its own horn and saying, look at me, I'm a great leader. But actually, to me, leadership isn't about us personally. Leadership is about how are we supporting, developing and nurturing people who are with us along for the journey. And women do that brilliantly, right? That's the kind of leader we want to see. So instead of framing it as leaders must all behave this way because these are the these are the this is the way it works, we need to now start of redesign what leadership is and look at what can women bring? What can people of color bring? What can um, uh, LGBTQ plus people bring, right? What can people with disabilities, neurodivergent people bring? We, the workplace right now is probably only tapping 20% of the workplaces, uh, sorry, the world's capacity and population because the way it's structured excludes the 80%, right? The women and, and people of different races and other nationalities. This is what I want to challenge and get us to look at different ways of leading, different ways of even how the markets work, different ways of shareholder expectation. Instead of being profit-driven, look at purpose, people, planet, right? I know that sounds ideal, but hey. An interesting thing that I have seen in the last 10 years that I've been training, and I train leaders, I train staff, and I ask this question of leaders repeatedly every single time. Do you know what your leadership style is? And I get the deer in the headlights look, and I very, very rarely get an answer. I might get one or two answers, but what they talk about is maybe a couple of descriptors, but they don't actually know what their leadership style is. And if you don't know what your leadership style is, how do you know that you're effective? How do you know that it's working? So I think first we have to decide what is the leadership style that we want and, and are we going to be collective about it? I would say read a book on leading with emotional intelligence. Take a course mm -hmm. leading yeah. with emotional intelligence. Start there and look at all the different styles and decide what works for you and what's the best one today. That, yeah, I think the, we have to at the, least start there. The leadership style question is a, such a good one because most, uh, I think most people would say, well, isn't there only one? Yeah, right? there's only yeah. one. And when you start to say, look, there's yeah, yeah. And and so when when we start to talk about organizations that are built around 
uh, focusing on relationships versus roles every single moment of the day. You know, take some time and think about what you're creating in, in relationship with other people, however they're ranked along with your ranking, because that's what causes people to actually want to become and in, come into the workplace and show up uh, when they can bring their whole selves, when they feel seen, when they feel heard, when they feel like their contribution is actually going to get into the, the process by which the sausage is made, so to speak. And I, we're, we're coming up on an hour right now, and I, I, would, I, I would be remiss if we didn't take a moment here to return back to the people who might be listening because they, they're experiencing bullying in the workplace, experiencing it, um, and, and they have that anxiety and fear and sense of powerlessness. So I'd like to invite each of you to, uh, to help them understand what their, very, what their very next step is. First of all, you have to learn, what, learn about workplace bullying. I don't want you to overwhelm yourself, but learn about it. And, and, and I'm talking research. I'm not talking about hearsay and, and, and assumptions. Learn facts. Look at your policies and procedures in your location. What is your legislation? What is your company policies and procedures? What do they expect from you? Learn about that. What, what is your benefits package? Do you have options here? Some people need sick leave and they don't know whether they can take it or not. So inform yourself. Most importantly, start to document the minute that you find that you just know something's not right. You're confused. You're not feeling right. You're not sleeping right. Make sure you start documenting, not only because if at some point you're going to want to make a complaint, you're going to want to show that you are a credible person. And documentation will show your credibility. That's going to be critical. Secondly, documentation is very good for your mental health. If you do not document, it ends up being a scrambled mess in your head. In your head. Now you're waking it up at three o'clock in the morning and you're ruminating about, oh, she said that. Did I write this down? Where did I make that note? And we end up with notes all over the house or in the car, or in the bathroom or whatever. And we end up in the night wondering, uh-oh, you feel insecure. You don't have clarity anymore. So I say mental health because it, it keeps you clear. Clarity keeps you clear and clarity keeps you confident. And with confidence, you've got more courage. And with more courage, you'll, you eventually will compl- make a complaint. And now you've got a good case. You might not have any plan whatsoever to make a, a complaint, but at least commit to documenting for your mental health, as well as potentially, you know, maybe it's, it's October right now, but maybe in January something happens and you're going to change your mind and you're going to want to make, make a complaint. But you're not going to remember what happened in October, November, December. It's going to be vague. You're going to be fatigued. You're going to be stressed. So you need the documentation in a very safe place. I would also say see a doctor. Symptoms or not, you want another professional documenting on your behalf, right? And you do want your symptoms monitored because we don't want you having a heart attack. The other thing I would suggest is see someone like me or Anima that does this work. So that's another professional documenting on your behalf. But the other part about being stressed is your vision is quite limited, Your perspective becomes smaller and smaller and smaller to survive, not because you're incompetent. It's to survive. You start to limit what you're seeing because you can't cope with the entire picture, which means you also limit the options available to you. You're not seeing the full picture. So you're at risk of isolating. And if you're at risk of isolating, you're also at risk of becoming less confident, less clear, less, you know, less self-esteem and you get stuck in that self-doubt mode. So make sure that you are seeing somebody to get some clarity to, to the full picture comes back on board 
and, and they can help you develop a strategy of what's best for you for next steps. I just want to add that trust your gut. If something doesn't feel right, it's not okay by you. Whatever else, ever, and whatever anyone else says, it's not okay for you. It doesn't matter what other people say. Oh, no, that's, that's not bullying. That's not racist. It is for you. It's true for you. And what you do then is like, trust that. Don't, don't accept it. I think for a lot of us, we kind of like dismiss it. And it's just like the, the thousand paper cuts you mentioned, Linda. We dismiss the first one. We dismiss the 10th one. We dismiss the thousandth one. Finally, thousand and one. You got a HR and they go, well, what's wrong with that? But the thing is, the moment we feel that it's not okay, name it. What exactly just happened? What was it? Well, was someone undermining me? How did it feel? What exactly happened? And that's part of the documentation as well, is sort of naming it. And then looking back at, well, what does your workplace policy say? Do they address anything on that? And that helps you sort of focus and realize that it's wrong. This is what it is. And this is where I can go. So the other thing I would add is do not do this alone. In fact, um, we didn't talk about statistics, but one in three people around the world, it's more or less consistent, have been bullied at work. That's huge. That's endemic, right? So you're not alone. Um, so if one in three, by ch chances are other people in your workplace are also being bullied, but they, like you, have kept quiet and have accepted it. It's become normalized. And so if it's happening to you, talk to someone in the company that, that you trust and you'll find that they will say, oh my God, that happened to me too. And then the more of you start talking, you'll feel, you'll, it won't uh, knock at your self-esteem. You won't feel you're oversensitive because you know it's happening to others as well. And there's that sense of camaraderie and support as you build up that, that strategy to act, to go and report it and so on for your next step. So the immediate step is Trust your gut, talk to someone and name it. Yeah. Thanks. Isolating and silencing feeds the needs of the toxic people in your workplace. Think about it that way. Isolating and going quiet feeds their needs and enables it to continue. So we have to do the opposite. We have to do the opposite. You need to speak up. <laughs> speak up. We're going to put links to both of your organizations in the show notes. If anyone's listening and they'd like some more information, I, I know that both, uh, both of these women's resources run pretty deep on their sites, so we will make sure those are available. And I just want to, you know, again, from a, from a really personal perspective, you know, thank you all. Thank all three of you for this conversation. It's, you know, it's brought up some painful memories for me, but those are kind of memories that need to be processed and, and dealt with and, and reframed and reconfigured. Um, Thanks so much. And again, you know, just making sure that all the listeners are are taking care of themselves and, and you know, checking in with your gut. And if there's something that's not right there, start start writing it down and start reaching out for help. Thanks so much for, for helping other folks, Linda and Anima. I'll close with this statement, Charles, and it's a gut statement. And that is that we know the people in our lives and our work lives are in our personal lives. And when someone says, I'm getting bullied, something's going wrong. I know you well enough, Charles, to know that I can trust you and trust your gut. And I think in that regard, this is a question of, of knowing and understanding, not with our heads, but with our hearts, that someone's in pain and, 
and we trust their observation uh, as we can also trust our own. So thank you uh, for joining us today and, um, and thank you for your story. It was, it was powerful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on the Remaking Manhood podcast. You can connect with me, Charles Matthews, and find more of my writing and speaking on the website, charlesmatthews.com. That's C-H-A-R-L-E-S-M-A-T-H-E-U-S dot com. You can also interact with me and with other men who are working to craft authentic, workable masculinities in the group Redefining Strength on Facebook. You can find me, Mark Green, on most social media platforms at Remaking Manhood. And you can find me at remakingmanhood.com. Dr. Carolyn Heldman has this to say about the Little Me Too book for men. It's a profoundly empathetic guide for men who are navigating a culture that pressures them to bury their humanity. The Little Me Too book for men is a powerful call to end the epidemic of sexual assault against girls and women. If you'd like to help someone you love break out of the man box, pick up a copy of my book, The Little Me Too Book for Men. It's available at Amazon.com and at Barnes & Noble online. Just do a search for little hashtag me too book for men. Don't forget the hashtag. And thank you for supporting our work. This has been Remaking Manhood, the Healthy Masculinity Podcast.